The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. In the summer of 2020, GameStop was a legacy brick and mortar realtor retailers struggling to find their way in the world of e-commerce. The company was founded in 1984 and has 5,500 retail locations worldwide. But its core operation, the selling of video games and computer games and accessories, have become outdated with the streaming and downloading of games. The company lost over $600 million in its last year before the COVID pandemic. The company's stock was just under $5 a share, and many observers thought it was doomed, like the, is the famous toy retailer Toys R Us. Yet the company's stock started rising steadily during the fall to around $20 at Christmas time. And then in the last half of January 2021, it just went totally crazy, rising to $350 a share with a $200 gain in just one day. After falling to $40 in February, the stock has surged again and it's been hovering around $150 prior to this. What explains this madness? And does it just demonstrate that the stock market is nothing more than a casino? Well, except that when the investors are, are betting about companies, they're also gambling workers' jobs. Joining me on eConversations to help explain the GameStop madness is Mr. Peter Earle. He's an economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. Peter studied engineering at the U.S. Military Academy and then earned graduate degrees in both economics and finance. And he worked in finance for over 20 years before joining AIER. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit then uh, about, you know, before we get into GameStop, uh, you know, I mentioned the, what happened to this price and, and people saw this and, and, and sometimes see events like this in the stock market. It might just make them think that it's all a casino or all kind of crazy stuff. Before we get to talk about GameStop and exactly what happened there with some kind of technical stuff uh, with the short selling, let's talk a little bit about what, what role the stock market plays for our, our, our economy as a whole and you know, how it manages to do what it does. Sure. So the, the, the strength of a, of, a, of a market economy is based upon a few things, or, or it's unleashed by a few things. You have private property rights, you have money prices. Uh, and you have a, a few other factors, but the most important are those. And markets work because they use prices to signal to other the availability of resources in given places. So, for example, when you have a disaster, uh, a lot of times there are prohibitions on what's called um, uh, either um, price gouging or something like that. And what that does is it actually prevents aid from getting to places because prices rising signal that, signals that there's need somewhere and, re, and, and producers respond to higher profit margins. Mm. In the stock market, prices signal or the prices rise and fall based upon individual and sometimes institutional assessments of the future value of a stock. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not so much that an expensive stock is worth more than a smaller stock because prices are based upon multiples of future earnings. So for example, if you had a stock that was priced, uh, or if you had a stock that was $10, and it was estimated that it would make a dollar share in the next year, that is a price to earnings ratio of 10. But a stock of 50 with a $50 share price that was expected to have earnings of $5 next year would also have 
a price to earnings ratio of 10. So there's a difference between price and valuation. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what's reflected in stock prices are, are, are differences in assessments of valuation at a given point in time. And the stock, I mean, is really like one small share of the ownership of the company. So it's those future, what, whatever profits the company's likely to earn and, uh, that, that you're, you're getting in effect a, a, a tiny little share of as, as the owner of a stock in a company, right? Right, exactly. In fact, uh, that's changed a lot because there was a time when the only reason to own stocks in the 19th century were the dividends, that you would actually receive a certain amount of cash per share the way bonds work. And now that's changed utterly where most firms don't actually pay out dividends. People are actually buying shares for the price appreciation mm-hmm. as the so as, as the prospects for higher earnings loom and as they're realized, the, the, the valuation rises and the price rises. Uh, but that's that's basically the basis upon which people invest is where they think there are high earnings that are likely to continue or rise. Well, if we know what the future was going to be, then it'd be very easy to, to price everything. But that's really like the the, the miracle of the, the stock market, why it's so valuable, because it's really bringing together all these different people with different visions of the future and how they think the economy might evolve and, and, and everything. And, and they get to hash it out in the stock market and try and think how much uh, companies should be worth, right? Yeah, so one way, oftentimes people have a difficulty in in, in figuring the stock market out because it looks like it's just paper flying around, paper shares. But the way to look at the stock market is it is a market for titles to aggregates of capital. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that a firm would go out and buy a mine or buy a factory, when firms go out and, and they buy either other companies or when the value of a, of, a, of a company is changed because the prospect for earnings have risen or fallen, uh, that's, that, that feeds into the whole term structure of production. Mm-hmm. That's a factor in basically, in basically figuring out where capital is going to go, where banks are going to make loans and all that sort of thing. So it's not, as people think, just a blizzard of paper. It has real and significant economic opportunities. But that also doesn't mean that because a stock is high priced or low priced that the underlying company is necessarily healthy or 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 or, or in poor financial health or vice versa there can be a there can be a distant difference between stock prices and between uh, actual real world performance if you could explain that elaborate on that a little bit for us how you can sometimes get these differentiate differences sure so so to some extent um, so there's a lot of factors that, that, that come into that. First of all, there's just human rationality or irrationality. There's sentiment. Um, there's also, uh, in, 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 in a vacuum of it for information, sometimes stock prices move to a certain extent, move radically one way or the other. The other. I mean, an example of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, uh, of that on the upside would be in the dot-com era when you had stock prices that were bid up very high because there were no available metrics for valuing them. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so even though many of them had no earnings, I mean, people wanted to be in these stocks for when they started to realize earnings. And so a lot of them were bid up very high. And that actually has a lot to do with just plain supply and demand. A lot of people are squeezing into stocks at any price because they have no idea what the earnings will be, but they think they'll be high. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you had what happened in uh, on March uh, uh, 15th and 16th of last year, where when COVID struck, 
the uh, a lot of the policy implementations and a lot of the other things that were happening uh, led investors to conclude they had no idea what this was going to do to stocks. And it was an open-ended question of whether there would be lockdowns or if there were lockdowns, how long they would last. And for that reason, we had a crash. We had the first crash in the stock market um, since uh, 1987. The stock price is down 12% in one day and over 25% in several days. And what that basically was, was investors taking the entire aggregate of the equities market and selling it, saying, we don't, we know we have to discount earnings, but to what extent, we don't know. So really, right now, we just want to clear the slate and we'll come back in when the outlook is clearer. And you, what you've been describing is that information usually gets shows up in the stock market very quickly. It shows up in stock price movements very, very quickly. And that's one of the great things that, that's, that's going on here, right? That's why liquidity is important. Liquidity is basically the, I mean, one way of describing it is the likelihood of finding a counterparty when I want one. If I want to sell my stock now, what's the likelihood that I can do it quickly or do I have to wait for a seller to show up? And mm -hmm. the U.S. stock markets are incredibly liquid. And what that translates into is the very quick reflection in the stock's price of changes in sentiment. And, and then I mean, what's really happening here is, I mean, investors anywhere across the world can look at the U.S. stock market and think that if they think some companies undervalued or overvalued, they, they can sort of like come in and, and put their own money behind this and, and sort of make a gamble. I mean, in one sense it's a gamble, but it's also a bet based on what they think they know about the, the economy and the future of a company, right? That's absolutely the case, and that's why I, people who've done that for a while or people who understand the stock market, they don't really get very upset about, about overvalued or undervalued stocks because at some point when the overvaluation or undervaluation becomes profound, other market participants, whether they're arbitragers or just people with adverse opinions, uh, with differing opinions, come in and sort of push those prices back towards a, a more fair valuation. It's sort of mean reverting, but that doesn't mean that uh, as one saying goes, prices can't remain irrational longer than investors can remain solvent. <laughs> That's a good that way to think of it. Yeah. Um, now, when it comes down to you know wanting to try to place these bets based on whether you think companies are undervalued or overvalued, is is very in one sense it's very easy if you think a company's undervalued because you can buy the stock and, and wait for it to go up in value. But it's a little harder sure. to say if you think a company's overvalued to try to profit from that, because you obviously can't hold the stock while it goes down in value. And this is where, where we call short selling comes in. So tell us how this would work. Right, so there's a couple of things you could do if you thought a, a stock was, was, was overvalued. You could buy puts, which are options, you could sell calls, but the most direct way is to, to, is to enter into a short sale. Okay. But what a short sale is, is basically it's a long purchase upside down. You would make money as the stock goes down and lose as the stock goes up in price. And the mechanics that are basically that uh, the, the, the short seller obtains stock that's being lent to them, they sell it, and they have to replace it at a lower value. That's the basic way that it works. Mm -hmm. But the really important thing to remember about short selling is that while long purchasers can only lose uh, the value of their investment down to zero, Short sellers can only earn up to zero. Basically, if you short a stock at 10, the most you could make would be rebuying it at essentially zero or one cent or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the upside, the stock movement on the upside represents unlimited downside, which means theoretically infinite losses. Although, of course, there's no infinite stock price, but it could mean horrendous losses, sometimes in a very short amount of time because of the mechanics of covering the short sale. 
and, and that's sort of what we got into with uh, GameStop, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but you know, I guess what started is that some investors, in fact, especially some hedge funds, seem to think that uh, they wanted to short hedge, uh, this GameStop, and, and they were really sort of pessimistic about the, the company, right? Sure, I mean, when you look at the, at the, at the, at the, at the surface, it seems like a no, no brainer short, right? Because you have a brick and mortar business, which is in the same, the same follows the same sort of pattern as say Blockbuster and all that sort of thing. Firms that uh, used to be brick and mortar and now they can deliver their goods electronically. Um, uh, the the the, uh, the firm Valve has a product called um, Steam, which is basically like an online gaming store. Uh, it's very efficient. Uh, it probably carries more games online than you could find at a GameStop. And so it seemed like a like a like a like a pretty slam dunk that eventually GameStop. Would, would either go out of business or radically have to alter their business plan, mm -hmm. which introduces uncertainty and probably lower stock prices. But, um, uh, well, we won't get to the next part of the story until you do, but mm. uh, for, for a couple of hedge funds, uh, the outcome was quite the opposite. Yeah. Now, some people think that, you know, when you're shorting a company, because you're in effect almost like betting that it's gonna meet its demise, that, that that's almost like you're um, uh, immoral because you're in effect, you know, yeah. you're, you're coming to the market, you're saying, I'm going to make this bet that, you know, this company, which means, you know, actual people working there, this company's going to die. And, but yeah. that's not really the way we should probably think about, right? No, no, no. Short, seller, short sellers don't destroy value any more than buyers create value. They are, they are part of the price formation process, the price discovery process. And to me, they perform an invaluable service because mm -hmm. It's one thing to talk, it's another thing to put capital behind your views and to try to correct the price. So they have, an, they have a really, uh, they have a sort of intrinsic role, a critical role in, uh, in that sort of mean reversion process that I mentioned before, where if stocks get overvalued, people short them. If they get undervalued, people buy them. Yeah. I mean, Nothing more about it. I, I think of it as sort of like, they're the ones delivering the bad news, but they, they didn't really kill the company. They're just saying- Yeah, don't kill the messenger. They're the, the they're doctor coming in and saying, this company is not alive anymore. Um, right, right. Now, then you, know, you, you mentioned this when we were talking about the, the mechanics of short selling. You, you get, in, get into uh, this situation where the, the price can start to rise. And, and that seemed to be what happened. And there were some like, uh, I guess, new investors in, in the market, for the Reddit uh, forum, and, and they, they seemed to decide that they wanted to try to bid up the, the, the price of, of game stock. Uh, stock. And so then tell us about this thing of a short squeeze that happens and, and how it can be so I guess, disruptive or what we saw. Yeah, I mean, it's a curious thing because, <clears throat> because uh, I, I think a lot of what happened in this case with uh, GameStop had to do with not just a lot of investors on the uh, Wall Street bets and Reddit bulletin boards jumping in and, and buying it, but also them timing it so that they're all buying at the same time, mm -hmm. therefore focusing that demand on limited supply in the market. And also, I, I mean, I don't know whether they thought the company had uh, some bright future that professional institutions, uh, hedge funds didn't know about. I think it was mostly driven by sentiment. I think mm -hmm. a lot of them had romantic memories of being a kid and going to GameStop, and they right. thought that, uh, and, and, and they viewed uh, these hedge funds as sort of victimizing the company. Right. Um, but what happens in what happens in a short sale, and this is a phenomenon that goes back as old uh, or as long as equity markets do, including the United States, is that what happens is when you are short, 
you lose money as the stock rises. And so when the price begins to rise, either because news comes out or just because a lot of buyers focus their attention on buying the stock in a short amount of time, which I believe this was, um, what happens is the stock starts to rise and short sellers, people with short positions, begin taking losses. But to cover those, to get out of that position, they also have to buy. So they wind up competing with other buyers who, are, who want to see the stock go up to get out of their short position. So, I mean, it's like, if you had a leash on and you were, you know, when your dog has a leash on and he starts running, he chokes himself as he tries to get away. Um, it becomes very painful because you wind up, you wind up pushing the price against yourself to get out. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what happens. And once this starts going up, and this gets into the element of of a, a bubble, and, and we, just, we describe this as, I mean, even if you thought that GameStop didn't have a great future. You might want to, as, as the price was going up in January, you might want to jump in and buy some because you think you can buy it, it's going to go up in value, and then you can uh, sell it at a profit, right? So, so, yeah, so my personal view is that, and it, it ties directly to this, is that the GameStop uh, investors, the, the, the online traders that worked through, um, from, from Wall Street Bets who were using Robinhood and a few other retail brokerages, I believe they got the ball started. Mm -hmm. I do believe that they got the share price from 12 to maybe 50 or 75. But I think that that momentum, that upper momentum was not going to subside until the shorts were basically covered, mm -hmm. until Melbourne, a number of other firms were out of their position. So I think there were other hedge funds that maybe had never even looked at GameStop who said, this is basically free money. We can push this thing up and we'll know, we'll basically know that, that, that Melvin is out of this position or what other uh, hedge funds are out of the position when the price is uh, is harder to move up. So there's a little bit of feel involved, but I definitely think that uh, it started with uh, the GameStop people uh, squeezing the shorts, and it wound up just a free for all, just to see how high they could get the stock. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you know, that that would be you know, bad for the hedge funds that had come in and shorted the the, the stock. They they ended up making a, a bad bet in this regard. But you know, when GameStop uh, stock is short. Soared and it's still much higher than it was like last uh, summer. At, at this point in time, I mean, is, is the company saved now? At this point in time, is, is is troubles behind it? No, absolutely not. I mean, so actually, it's funny. So, so a quick quick note on valuation. Uh, GameStop, depending upon what metrics you use, either has no price to earnings ratio or it has a price to earnings ratio of about 200 at this price. That's forward looking. The P.E. ratio of the average stock in the S&P 500 index is about 20. So it's overvalued by a factor of about 10. And, mm -hmm. and arguably, infinitely, if you believe it, that in the, in, I believe the, the present P.E. ratio is basically zero because it has losses. Now, right. today, the stock was up about, or maybe yesterday. Yesterday, today, the stock was up about 10% because their CEO is resigning and a new CEO is coming in. So that price change might be reflective of new opportunities, mm -hmm. uh, greater earnings, somebody with maybe some more innovative ideas for the company. But this is what I was talking about before between the disconnect between the real world and the stock market. In this case, you have a stock which has an astronomical valuation and the move in the stock, whether it was being squeezed up or when it fell back down after the shorts had exited and prices appeared more uh, prices approached more conventional valuations has very little to do with the actual uh, state of uh, the actual health of the company and all that with with one small caveat and that is that 
to some extent, companies with higher share prices and with liquid uh, with, with liquid securities can sometimes be viewed as more favorable for loans and that sort of thing. Right. So to the extent to the extent that the higher share price means that a bank would be more willing to loan uh, GameStop uh, money or, or, or provide some other sort of um, uh, assistance, that might have some implication. But I think that as long as we're looking at the same balance sheets, it's not going to matter that much. GameStop is the same company it was, with the exception of the fact that it has a much higher share price. And at some point, you know, somebody's got to figure out some way to create some value with these resources, or eventually they are going to be reallocated. I mean, people are not going to continue to uh, right. know, uh, hold the stock at a value where it's so far out of line. Um, so eventually, they, and that's really the important thing for our economy. It was like, is there something that somebody out there can figure out as a way to use these resources productively in their current use, or do they need to be shifted into something else? Right. So I mean, it eventually comes down to the uh, to the uh, what's called in finance the shutdown decision. And basically, what one would hope for is that these if these companies prove that they're either not viable or that they could be viable, but the wrong people are executing the business plan, either new owner owners can came can come in, they can take they can buy the stock that which 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 would give them ownership if they take a majority of the stock, depending upon the way it's structured. Uh, those new investors would basically take control of the company and they could liquidate some of those resources and free up some of that capital or they could there's a lot of things that they could do but what generally happens is those resources wind up being uh, stewarded better by a new owner or by someone who's better at managing or, or, or employing those uh, those assets it's all part of economic calculation in a broader sense no uh, some people have suggested that the uh, the, the reddit investors uh, the, they came in then using like the Robin Hood app have, have some like fundamentally changed the, the stock market or made it uh, more democratic. Um, do you put any stock in that? I don't. Uh, I don't agree with that. I also am not sure that the market should be democratic. Uh, I mean, but by, by, I should clarify that, by which I mean, uh, to the extent that uh, prices are determined by supply and demand, um, if one investor has enough capital to move a price that will, to a place where in terms of valuation it reflects their view, it shouldn't matter if uh, if there are smaller um, entities that can't that either don't get the price they want or that sort of thing. And the other thing is that uh, large investors, I mean, we've demonized hedge funds, but we don't, but people do demonize hedge funds. Um, you know, hedge funds are not necessarily these sort of uh, cutthroat, uh, mercenary entities that they're painted to be. There's as many types of hedge funds as there are trading strategies, and some mm -hmm. of them represent constituencies, by which I mean investors, in 401ks, and some of them represent retirees. So to the extent that the decisions of a hedge fund might affect millions of people in their retirement, and retail investors are really, this is not about retirement, this is sort of just playing in the market, I do think that what the hedge fund does is generally more important. No. There were a number of congressional hearings held in the aftermath of, of this GameStop madness, and, and one of the concerns was raised is that you know some people could come in and, and have bought GameStop at something like $150 or whatever, and not know what's going on, and they could lose a bunch of money. And, and so, uh, is it? Do you think that we should try to do more to pro protect investors who, who make a decision to get in the market, or should it be more of a, a case where we say? If you're going to elect to get into the market, you should know what you're doing, and if and if you're too ill-informed, then you should uh, bear the losses. 
Sure. So I've been hearing arguments like these since the mid 90s when I got mm -hmm. into the financial markets. There are many protections in place. Uh, ultimately, you can't protect people from themselves. And I would say that uh, uh, it's, it, it should be incumbent upon investors to understand the market that they get into. I mean, the, the, the idea that a group of retail investors took on and defeated Wall Street in the stock is just way too simple a narrative. It's a feel-good narrative, but it absolutely has nothing to do with the situation. The real story here is that both on the side of the hedge funds that were still short millions of shares of GameStop at the price of 12, and mm -hmm. retail investors who after this thing, after the stock was squeezed up to 150 and $200 a share, were still going long when mm -hmm. the valuations had exceeded anything that was reasonable. To me, that's a bigger picture and a bigger sort of um, um, story about how risk appetites have exploded uh, in recent years on both sides. Now, one of the things you've written about with regard to, to uh, GameStop and some of the other uh, you know, rises in, in stock uh, prices recently is that that might be related to uh, monetary policy over the last uh, year or so as well. Uh, ex sure. explain, for this a uh, explain for our viewers a little bit this connection. Sure. So when the Fed lowers interest rates and creates programs such as the Basically, when we had the, uh, the the market collapse uh, owing to COVID throughout March of 2020, the Fed dusted off a bunch of the programs that it had opened up to provide liquidity to the markets uh, in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And what that did was that, that, that sent money into all sorts of channels, mostly U.S. Treasuries, but also to other markets. So the effect of that money coming into the market was to push down on interest rates. And the, and the Fed, by the way, also explicitly lowest, it lowered the Fed funds rate and the discount rates to levels we hadn't seen since not only 2008, uh, but also after September 11th and during the dot-com bust. So we've had, really, we've had about 15 or 16 out of 20 years with abnormally low interest rates, less than half of a percent. Mm -hmm. And what that does is that tends to create meaningless returns for people who seek risk-averse investments. So there was a time where over the lifetime of uh, over an individual's lifetime, they would start out invested in stocks, you know, with a return of say six to eight percent, eight to twelve percent per year. Over time, they would change the allocation of their of their investments towards away from risky stocks and more towards risk, less risky investments, treasury bonds, things like that. But now, what's happened is with all this liquidity that the Fed has uh, has basically pushed into the market, and we went from, I mean, the Fed's balance sheet went from three and a half to I think over eight trillion. Um, what we have is that the returns on the on the lower risk investments, such as certificates of deposit, uh, treasury bonds, municipal bonds, all the things that income focused investors, uh, 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 people who are retired or who are sort of on a fixed income would rely on, have been made negligible. Mm -hmm. So I can remember being a kid when we had 12% interest on uh, or 12% uh, yields on uh, treasury bonds. Now, I mean, they went as low as. 0.3, and now they're at maybe 1.5 or so. That's the 10-year Treasury. And so what you have is your investors pushed into riskier and riskier investments to earn meaningful returns. That's why we've seen these high. That's why we've seen performance in things like um, special-purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, which are basically blank check companies. We've seen uh, people rush into cryptocurrencies because of the returns mm -hmm. there. We've seen it in places like um, oh, what else? In microcap stocks. So. 
slowly with more liquidity and with lower interest rates, what we've seen is that investors are pushed further and further up the risk curve. And I think that also explains why you had investors, uh, even I'll be at retail investors in GameStop and in, in retail accounts buying this stock that was probably, I mean, I mean, it was probably in a, on a conventional and traditional basis overvalued from 12 to 20 dollars, buying it and going long at 150 dollars a share. And while you had a hedge fund that had millions and millions of shares short at 12 dollars a share, when the most they could have made um, is arguably. 11 to seven dollars because a lot of stocks have a lot of institutionals institutional investors have to get out of a stock when it falls below five mm -hmm. so conceivably uh conceivably melvin wasn't even going to make 12 dollars on their on their average if their average price was 12 they were only going to make maybe seven dollars a share and the risk the upside risk was tremendous so to me that's the story is exploding risk appetites uh all throughout the market over the last year and, and beyond now, like, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I know, like, in graduate school, we would have learned, like, if there's a big increase in the money supply, we should have been expecting some in inflation. But, you know, I guess we haven't seen the inflation, at least yet, but, you know, arguably, maybe this is what we're, we're seeing some of it in the stock market instead. Is, is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about cantillon effects, which are the injection effects uh, from money coming in. When, uh, when, when, when we had a gold-backed economy and money was coming in through gold miners, their purchases were the places where inflation first materialized. Uh, and, and with money coming through banks and with the Fed providing liquidity to firms that are dealing in treasuries and that sort of thing, the big banks, certainly those, those entities are going to take their money, the money they receive, and put it to work in financial assets. And that's why we see certain areas with these sort of explosive outside returns and other areas sort of listing. Well, well, thanks very much for coming on and talk about this. It's been very illuminating. I think hopefully we made some of this was happening on with GameStop a little more sensible to our viewers. Thanks for coming on, and thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.